Join me in, let's pray. Father, as we get ready for the time when we preach the Word of God, I pray, Lord, first of all, that I would be anointed to preach, equipped, able to explain, strengthened by the Holy Spirit. But Lord, it's not just about me. It's about us as a body. Hearing and understanding the Word of God and then not being hearers, but doers of the Word, of course. So for every person listening, whether they're by live stream or whether it's present here in the church building, I pray, Lord, that we all would be submissive to the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would be cleansed of our sin and that we would have ears to hear what you were saying, not to someone else, not to them, but to us. May we be responsive. May we be obedient to you. And Lord, I pray for people who are struggling right now and the enemy is using their struggles to keep them from hearing and obeying the word of God. I pray for that person who's having family problems right now, their children, their grandchildren, however the case may be, are rebellious and stubborn, unsaved and unsubmissive to the Lord. Oh, Father, would you change that? And would you give them relief this morning? I pray, Lord, for the marriage that's struggling. And I pray, Father, for that husband, that wife, that they might lay down the sword and take up the cross and die to self. And help them to learn what that means and to trust you and to serve the other person. And I pray you'd begin resolving those issues that they face even today. I pray, Lord, for the person who is worried to death about the economy, about their job. Lord, I pray that you would set their mind at ease, that the good shepherd of the sheep never fails to take care of his sheep, that you've got this all in control, and you'll meet every need that they have. I pray for the person today who is sick. I pray for people like Diana Long and Bob Hooker and... Susan Hall, and we've got others as they battle and as they grow and as they recover and as they heal and all of the things that they have to go through. I'm so sorry that they have to go through it, but I thank you, Lord, that you gave us medical science and you gave us medicines and treatments, but most of all, Lord, that you made our bodies with the capability of healing, and I pray you would do that. And I pray, Lord, that all throughout our auditorium today, we'd be able to lay aside every care, every burden, everything that's crying for our attention right now, set it aside and place our attention on Christ and his wonderful, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, eternal word. And we pray all of this for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And... Uh, Turn in your Bibles, please. Surprise, not Exodus today. We've got something else I want to share. Would you turn to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. And um, we're going to pick up at uh, verse 40. And it's telling us some things about the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. People keep saying we need to get back to what the early church did and the church in its purity. And I would agree with that. But we need to know what that is. 
before we uh, try to get back to something where we might be wrong, we might be mistaken, we might be messed up, we might be, as they say, barking up the wrong tree. And we don't want to do that. We don't have much time to waste. Time is going by so fast, if you haven't noticed. Acts chapter 2, what happened? And uh, this is making reference, verse 40, to the Apostle Peter when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Well, I was reading that the other day, and I thought, if that was true then, it's really true now, isn't it? Be saved from this perverse generation. Don't follow along. Don't be like them. There's a better way. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Baptism always comes after salvation, by the way. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's a great service, isn't it? Verse 42, and they, who are the they? The 3,000 and the other believers that were there. And they continued, here's a key word, steadfastly. And those words, continuing steadfastly, are attached to these other things. The apostles' doctrine, they continued steadfastly in fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. I think that would be the Lord's Supper. And they continued steadfastly in prayer. How you doing? I think we can look and we can say as a church... And as individual believers, we do those things, we believe those things, but I'm not sure we can say we continue steadfastly in each one of those things. Some things better than others, but that's the key to what the early church did is they continued steadfastly in all four of those areas. And so some of us may continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but not so much in prayer. We may continue steadfastly in fellowship, but not so much in the apostles' doctrine or something like that. Got to be all of them. This is the key. This was the secret to their tremendous influence and their growth. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It was a supernatural, inexplicable thing. It wasn't about their talent. It wasn't about their lighting. It wasn't about the quality of their music. It wasn't about anything like that. It was obviously the Holy Spirit of God. It was supernatural. Verse 44. Now all who believed were together. There was unity. And had all things in common. How did that look? Verse 45. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Well, that would be different, wouldn't it? And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Now let me just say, this is all just introduction, why is it we expect God to add to the church without doing the things that are mentioned above? The Lord adds to the church that continues in those four things. 
He adds to the church where there's a supernatural element. Things are done in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ. He adds to churches that are givers and they minister and they meet needs and they're aware of other people's needs and uh, the, the Lord does these kind of things <clears throat> when we are steadfast, steadfast and diligent, not hit or miss, not just sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. <clears throat> Amen to what Brother Dale said about allergies. Um, and I got to thinking about that and I got to thinking of some other verses and uh, I want to share them. So you'll need to turn in your Bibles to different verses. Because I come from kind of an agricultural background in my family. A lot of farmers and people who work the land, that kind of thing. Probably you do too if you go back far enough. And uh, there's a time, even the Bible says this, a time to plow, a time to plant. You know, if you uh, do all the right things but you plant your crop at the wrong time of the year, you're not going to get anything. There's a, there's a time, there's an opportunity for it. And in order to plant, you've got to have the ground to be turned, to be plowed, to be ready. And every day is not a good day for plowing. They usually don't plow in the rain, for example. Uh, there's a time that we're supposed to plow, and I think for us, speaking as... Uh, your pastor, your shepherd, I think it's time for us to put our hand to the plow. And the thing that I thought of, the very first verse, is found in the gospel. No, excuse me, it's found in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. And I want you to see that there's a practical, a very, very practical warning here about this thing of plowing about this thing of putting your hand to the plow, as Jesus would say, and not look back. Continue with the practical warning about this. And it says in Proverbs 20, verse 4, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, and he will seek at harvest and have nothing. The sluggard. You know, I'm afraid today that our churches are filled with sluggards. Make it easy, make it cheap, or make it free, and uh, make it to where somebody else can do it, and it doesn't have to involve me. Surely they will do it. And that's why, statistically, they've told us for years that 80% of the giving is done by 20% of the church. Well, that's sad. Because if you're a part of the group that's not giving, it tells me some things about you. First of all, you think it's your money. And God has ways of showing you that it's not. And you don't want to find out that way. Listen to instruction. It's not yours. It's all His. It also grieves my heart because if you're part of that 80%, you're missing out on some tremendous blessings here in this life. There are a lot of promises that are given to the giver and uh, the stingy, the tightwad, the selfish, which is what you are if you're not giving, is a different matter. Read the book of Proverbs. It also breaks my heart because you're missing out on the opportunity for rewards. A lot of the rewards that you're going to receive at the judgment seat of Christ are going to be in according to your giving, to your giving. 
And then it also breaks my heart because it tells me something about you, not just monetarily. That's the small part of it. It tells me that you're not the kind of person that gives much of anything. I've noticed over the years that those who give generously to the Lord also give generously of their time. They give generously of their talents. They give generously to other people in needs emotionally and spiritually and physically, all of those kind of things. It just changes our heart when we are uh, truly the givers. But I read another statistic that was very similar. It said that 20% of the people do about 80% of the work in the church and of the church. Which means that people are witnessing, uh, missing out on the joy of witnessing. They're missing out on the joy of praise and worship. I mean, there are people that you can't even... They join the church. And I don't know why they join the church if they don't ever uh, intend to attend the church. That's always been strange to me. Remember that old joke about the Baptist, the Catholic, and the Lutheran pastor? And they all had churches with the belfry, the bell tower up on top. And they had bats in them. And they got together to talk. What are you doing about it? And, uh, you know, they tried some different strategies and shared those things. Then they got back together later on. And they said, how did it work? And the priest said, it didn't work at our church. And the Lutheran said, it didn't work at our church. And the Baptist said, it worked perfectly. Well, what did you do? And they all talked about the things that they tried. And then they looked at the Baptist and said, what happened? And he said, we just made them members and we haven't seen them since. And there's so much truth to that. So much truth. Why? Why be a part of a church if you don't intend to be a part of the church? And to be a part of the church meaning, means not just doing work at the church, but the work of the church which is to glorify Christ and spread the gospel throughout the nations. Why are we so hesitant to do anything like that? And why do we just do it in spurts? Go to camp, then we get a good two weeks out of that. Have a revival meeting and get a a week maybe out of that. We have some conference we go to, and that changes our life for a little while. But so often, it, it just doesn't do much. We don't continue steadfastly in much of anything except our own endeavors and pleasures. We don't fail to go to work. And some of you have sick days that are piled up where you could take off for the next year. And yet your church attendance is not anything like that. The slightest little thing will keep you away from church. There's something out of whack in uh, what we do and what we think. And then we wonder why our our country is going to hell in a handbasket. We wonder why our culture is just rotten. We wonder why we don't have much more impact. And I think a lot of it is just the consistency that we have. And so the writer of Proverbs says that this sluggard, this lazy person who's going to let everybody else do the work, he just doesn't have the time to plow. He's got time to sleep. He's got time for entertainment. He's got time for everything else. But no time for plowing. Oh, no. No, I'm going to get to that. One of these days, you mark my words, I'm going to get to it. And what happens to him? When the harvest comes, he seeks and he has nothing. It's not that he doesn't care about the harvest. He doesn't care about the work that it takes to reap the harvest. He's as hungry as anybody else. He just doesn't have any food because he didn't plow the ground. He didn't get it ready for planting. And I thought about that and thought about how easy it is for Christians to kind of get the same way. 
How come I'm not leading anybody to the Lord? Probably because I haven't planted any seed. How come I'm not seeing anybody get saved? Probably because I haven't watered. What's going on? You reap what you sow, the scripture says. And so the harvest uh, reveals our laziness and the harvest shows our indifference. We just don't really care all that much. We don't pray about it. We don't weep over it. And we don't have any intention of doing it. Oh, if somebody asks me, maybe I'll tell. But I'm not going to intentionally go to anyone else and try to tell them. And sometimes uh, we miss a harvest because the opportunity goes by. Oh, shoot. If only I had known or been aware, I would have done something then. Well, now that time is gone. And uh, because of that, there's no fulfillment. This sluggard is hungry. He's as hungry as anyone else. And he is seeking something else. But he can't find anything. Why? Because he didn't plow. When it was the right time to plow and get the land ready for planting so that he could get the harvest. Everybody wants the harvest, just nobody wants to plow. Jesus put it this way. The fields are white, ready to be harvested. Right? God's made sure of that. What's the problem? Laborers. They're few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Not that people will be saved. Not that there will be a harvest. That's not what he said. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth laborers in the harvest. And the only appropriate response is what Isaiah said to the Lord, Here am I, send me. But not very many people want to be sent. Not very many people want to work. Not very many people want to be involved. And so they may notice that there's not a harvest. They may complain because there's not a harvest. They may bemoan the fact that there's not a harvest. They may talk about the good old days when there was a harvest. But the truth of the matter is they were too lazy and too unconcerned to ever plow so that there could be a harvest now. Are you harvesting now would be the big question. Number two. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. And let's talk about the diligence it requires. Jesus told us this is not going to be a one and done thing. This is something that has to be done repeatedly. Repeatedly. And if you think about the way they plowed back in the days when Jesus lived. And you would uh, get behind a, a team of oxen or something like that. And your plow was just had a single blade on it, not like these big tractors now, but you had to plow. You had to plow straight. You had to plow the right depth. You couldn't let it skip. Um, you didn't want it hitting rocks or stumps or anything like that, or it might break your uh, plow blade. And so you had to do it. It was a lot of work, a lot of sweat, a lot of toil, uh, a lot of sunburn, I would imagine. And it was hard work. And you had to plow at the right time. We've already seen that from one verse. But you had to finish the job. You didn't just plow one furrow and then go, oh, boy, that was a lot. Probably was a lot, but you couldn't quit. You had to get the whole field ready to go, and you had to plow straight. Now, Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, Jesus said to them, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I wonder how many times we're plowing while we're looking back and then wondering why our rows aren't straight. And the imagery of that, the 
crooked row. What do we care about that? Well, it matters when we apply it to our life. Somebody's following you. Somebody's looking after you. Your children, your grandchildren, and people like that. What kind of a row are you leaving for them? <clears throat> a crooked row of inconsistency? On and off? Hot and cold? Spiritual and unspiritual? What kind of row are you uh, leaving for them to follow? What are they going to do if they are going to be like you? I think it also tells us that the crooked row is a life with uh, confusing priorities. You know, there's some people that claim to be Christians, but wow, there's something about the priorities of, the li of life, where their money goes, where their time goes, where their emotional energy goes. You know, all of that that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't quite line up with things. And that's confusing to your children. We're all concerned, why aren't we reaching this generation for Christ? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be really fair here. I don't think it's all because of the church. I don't think it's all because of Isaac in the youth ministry or Dale in the Awana ministry or anything like that. I don't think it has much to do it, with that. Not that those aren't important. I just don't think they're the main thing. When uh, I first was diagnosed with heart failure, my doctor told me, said, I'm going to give you a bunch of medicine, but the medicine is 10%. Your diet and your exercise are 90%. And I think when it comes to the things of the church, if we're not careful, we get them out of whack. And some parents think it's a Sunday school teacher's job to teach my kid. No, it's not. With all due respect and love, no, it's not. It's your job to disciple your children. When you think about other programs and activities, well, if they're doing what they want to do, then my kid would be right. No, it's, it's never commanded like that in the Bible. But you are to be diligent, Moses said in Deuteronomy, to teach your children, and you do it in a variety of settings. Not just the synagogue, not just at church, but when you're seated, when you're lying down, when you're walking, whatever it is you're doing, it's supposed to be in the everyday course of life. You're supposed to plow a straight furrow. And then Jesus mentioned this thing of looking back. And I think we can all see that if you're plowing like this poor guy in this picture, that if you were to look back, you'd have all kinds of problems. You've got to look ahead. You fix your eyes on a certain place, and then you plow straight ahead to that place. And you know what I've noticed? A lot of Christians today, maybe I'm talking about you, almost every bit of faithfulness to God is a past event. They have to look back. Do you have to look back to when you were a witness? Do you have to look back to when you were a generous giver? Do you have to look back to when you were fighting sin? Do you have to look back at a time when, oh, the glory of God was just everywhere, but it's always back. Jesus said, quit looking back. Paul even put it this way, forgetting those things which are behind, but pressing on toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. It's going to require diligent, looking intently at the author and finisher of our faith, having a God consciousness, a Christ consciousness in everything that we do, not just at certain times, certain moments, certain days, certain events, or even certain places. This is the way we are supposed to live. And so I want to just ask you to look at your life. Do you look back and everything good in your life spiritually is back? And everything that is fruitful is back. There's something wrong with that. 
If the harvest indeed is plentiful, as Jesus said it is, then we ought to be experiencing some of those things now. Are you plowing now? Are you leaving the plowing to the young people? Are you leaving the plowing to somebody else? I don't care what age you are. Your plow may look a little different than mine. Your plow may look a little different than somebody else's, but you still need to be plowing. You still want a harvest. And then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to look at part of verse 10. And I want to talk about the expectation of a harvest. Everybody knows there ought to be a harvest, and sometimes we do the things that ought to happen in order to get a harvest, but there's no faith. There's no expectation. Have you ever been where you kind of had the, the mully grubs and you're just kind of down in the dumps? And you say, I'm going to pray, but probably won't do any good. You ever felt like that? I'm going to go to church, but it's probably not going to do much for my life. I'm going to help this person, but, oh, they'll probably never be my friend or no relationship will come out of it. I'm going to share the gospel here, but I doubt anybody will get saved. That kind of thing. And uh, that's not the way we're supposed to live. We are supposed to live in the hope and the expectation of a harvest. There's not a farmer in the world that would get up and plow his field if he didn't expect a harvest. Think about that. That's why they do it. That's why they work those long hours. And by the way, you ought to pray for farmers. We're in a drought right now. And it's not just about whether your grass is green or not. It's about whether their cattle have pastures. It's about whether their crop is able to be harvested. That type of thing. We ought to think more uh, than just about ourselves. And the Bible even speaks of this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And look at verse 10. Paul's talking about giving. And he says, uh, does not he certainly speak for our sakes? Now, here's a point that really got me. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in, what's your Bible say right there? Hope. Plow in hope. Now, so if I'm taking to the plow in prayer, what does that tell me? I ought to plow in hope. If I'm taking to the plow to be a witness for Christ, I ought to plow in hope. If I am plowing in discipleship to help somebody grow in the Lord, I ought to plow in hope. I want to ask you, where is your hope? If your hope is in you, or if your hope is in the plow, or your hope is in the ground that you're plowing, or the weather, or anything like that, and I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, then your hope's in the wrong place. I don't care if the farmer does every single thing by the book perfectly, perfectly, perfectly. If God doesn't make the seed grow, there's not going to be a harvest. And so we plow in hope because our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our talents. It's not in our money. It's not in our ability. It's not in our resources. We're not supposed to trust in our resources anyway. We need the resources of God, the Holy Spirit. And so... He goes on to say, the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So why plow? 
Why thresh out the grain? Because you're going to benefit from it. You expect to receive from it. You expect there to be a harvest, and the farmer expects to benefit from the harvest. That's, after all, how he makes his living. It's how he clothes and feeds his family. So the expectation of the harvest, do you believe that God is sovereign? Can I get an amen on that? Then plow. Some people say, well, if God's sovereign, why should I do it? No, 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 no. God's sovereignty is every reason to do that. The fields are white and ready to be harvested. God knows every need that you've got, and he supplies that need as you need it. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the sovereignty of God should make us go to work because it's rigged. It's ready to go for us. It's waiting on us. And do you believe that God is sovereign? Then you need to prepare for the harvest. Have some expectation. Well, God's sovereign. He'll save anybody that he wants to save. Well, yeah. But that also means we ought to be obedient to this sovereign God. The word sovereign means he rules. And how dare we expect him to do something out there when he's not ruling in us, when we're living in rebellion. And so we've got to get ready. We've got to have an expectation. And you've got to prepare for the future as well. I remember one time at a church I was at, we had a high attendance day planned in Sunday school. And uh, we'd been praying about it. Some people had even been fasting. The church was excited about it. And then it snowed. You can't have a high attendance day when it snows. And it was a mess. And I was so upset with God. God, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Don't you want to bless us? All of that. And then I had the thought, count your chairs. And I counted every chair in the building. And if we had met our goal that day, we wouldn't have enough places for everybody to seat, be seated. I wouldn't be very good, would it? And so I learned from that that if you're going to have... Like, you know, if we set a high attendance day to have a thousand in Sunday school, we better have places for the thousand to sit, right? We'd better have things in place. And what this is teaching, and all you have to do is read through Proverbs, over and over and over again, it, it tells us and warns us as a people of God, be ready, be ready. Pray about it. Vance Havner said, Baptists are the only people that would gather to pray for rain and not bring an umbrella. And that's kind of the way we are. We don't really expect much to happen anyway because we're not really plowing in hope and expecting the harvest. Does that make any sense to anybody besides me? That we just kind of look and go, well, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. No, it's kind of like this. What is the will of God? And when I find the will of God through the word of God, I need to make preparation for that. I need to be ready for it. The fields were plowed not only to plant a crop, but also so that when the rains came, the water didn't just run off of hard soil. It was absorbed and was ready for the planting and the growing of the crop. Are you ready for that in your own life? Are we ready as a church? And I want us to be. And that's what we need to be concerned about. Okay, And then fourthly, notice... The command of the Lord. Now I'm going to read out of uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation. You say, what is that? It was Southern Baptist attempts to answer about uh, probably 25 years ago the um, gender-neutral NIV at that time they were coming out. It kind of fell by the wayside. But I was on a focus group 
for this uh, translation. And I like the way that it puts it here. It's in Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. Now, don't be ashamed to look in the table of contents if you need to to find Hosea. It's okay. Just want you to find it. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. And it's going to say something by the command of God about this issue of plowing. It says, Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until He comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain. You know, when the Lord comes and sends righteousness like the rain, are you going to be ready to receive it, or is your hard heart just going to have it run off somewhere else? God is saying here to the people of Israel, plow the unplowed, the fallow ground of your heart. I mean, it all kind of starts with us. We can want to reap a harvest everywhere else, but it's got to start with us and certainly start with our own heart. Sow in righteousness for yourselves. You know, you do reap what you sow. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, you can sow to the flesh or you can sow to the spirit, but be ready because you're going to reap according to what you sow. So sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love, right? Break up your unplowed ground. When? Well, now, because right now it's time to seek the Lord. There's not a better time than right now until he comes and righteousness is uh, reigning on you. Well, we all want that. We, oh, Lord, let the rain of your presence fall on me. We sing that, don't we? But what good does it do if the ground is not plowed? It just runs off. So everybody is sowing something toward righteousness or the flesh. And um, we need to think about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That's why it's got to be consistent. And it can't just be a, you know, you drop a seed every once in a while inconsistently in here. You're not going to get much of a crop. You've got to make sure that the seed is scattered properly. You've got to make sure that it's scattered at the right time. And you've got to water it and be ready to reap the harvest whenever it comes in. It's time to quit being lazy. It's time to quit being unconcerned. It's time to do it while we have the opportunity. You're not always going to have the opportunities you have right now. And uh, righteousness night rain. Wouldn't that be great to see that happen? Well, that led me to uh, something when I was at uh, First Baptist Church of Searcy, Arkansas. I saw a, a program that they had and uh, I liked it. Um, and so I kind of tweaked it and made it for us. We're going to do some plowing. They didn't use that word, but, but we are. And I want you to think about the letters that are in this word to kind of help you understand it. P, that stands for the people of God in prayer and fellowship. When you think about L, times of learning. We all need to learn the Apostles' Doctrine. O, we need outreach. That's a great commission. And W, we need times where we just worship the Lord. Now, what's that going to look like? We're going to start this next Sunday night. And on October the 3rd, that's going to be our P night. P-L-O-W, P night. 
And we're going to have the Lord's Supper in here. And then we're going to go back to the fellowship hall. And then we're going to eat. And we're going to fellowship together. Used to make fun. Baptists think that fellowship's just a casserole dish, a cup of coffee, and a donut or something. Well, that's not really what our fellowship is. But I'll tell you something I've learned. When you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. They're important. Why? Not just for the physical aspect of it, but the things that happen while we are eating the donuts, while we're drinking the coffee, while we're eating the casserole. There may be somebody that shares something with you that you would never know about them. A need that they have, a problem that they have, a burden that they have. You would never know about it, but there's something about setting and eating a meal together that makes it more comfortable and easy for us to talk. And so uh, on the first Sunday night of every month, we're going to try to either have a fellowship or a prayer meeting or both as we can. The second Sunday night of each month is going to be a time of learning. Now, when we get on into January, uh, this is going to look like we come to church on Sunday night and there'll be three or four different classes taught by people in the church that you'll be able to go to and attend and fellowship with them and learn with them. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, I've got some things on my heart I want to share on Sunday night. and It's been a long time since I preached on Sunday night. Uh, for the O, oh, that'll be times when we gather together for outreach. What does that look like? Oh, I don't know. We may get together and uh, send out cards and letters to absentees. It may be that uh, we put together sacks of gifts for Mission 405 to be given out at Christmas. It may be that we uh, come together, sing a little bit, have a word of prayer together, and then send you to your neighborhood to go out and walk, to prayer walk, or in some cases, prayer drive your neighborhood. Uh, there may be a, different things like that. And then the W for the worship. There may be a time when we come in here and we just share testimonies. There may be a time when we come in here and we do nothing but sing. There may be times when we come in here and do a combination of both. I don't know, but we're going to focus then on worship. You say, what is the S? Well, every once in a while you run into a fifth Sunday. And I think everybody needs a break. That'll be our Selah. That particular night, enjoy your family. That particular night, enjoy a, a night off and then get ready on the first Sunday to hit it again with the prayer and fellowship. Now in November, kind of a little bit different because we had that big Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, we're going to do that this year, by the way. And uh, where are we going to put that? Under P? Well, no, you don't want to have Thanksgiving dinner the first week of Thanksgiving. That wouldn't work. We're going to put it under the O for outreach. And we're going to say, we're going to have this big feast. Invite your friends, invite your family, and we'll share the gospel with them. And uh, then we'll go back and eat and have a great time. So what's the P going to be? Well, that's where the prayer thing comes in. And the 1st of November, we'll have a progressive prayer meeting. We haven't had one of those in a long time. And then we'll just go down through there like that, and that'll kind of be our pattern. You say, will it work? Hey, folks, I'm plowing in hope. I'm expecting it to work. Okay? But some of these things only work as well as we do. Right? And so we got to get ready to go to work. I almost uh, bought a pair of overalls to wear this morning to preach in. <laughs> Maybe should have. But I'm going to ask you today, put on your spiritual overalls. Put on those big leather gloves that Grandpa used to wear. Put on your boots. Grab a hold of the handle. 
and start plowing. Start plowing for the glory of God, for the good of the church, and for the sake of the harvest. So that's kind of where we're going. You say, what if it doesn't work? We'll try something else. Okay? You can always try something, and you never know until you try it. Let's try it. Now, what I'd like for you to do, if you're with me on that, I would like for you to come to the altar, and let's just pray. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, Brother Chad is right down here. Brother Chad, would you wave? You need to see this guy, and you need to tell him, I need to know Christ as my Savior and Lord, and he'll explain the gospel of Christ to you, that he died for your sins that he rose from the dead and that he's Lord of all. And if you'll trust him, he'll save you. And he'll get you with somebody who can help you with that. If you want to join the church, that's the guy to see. He'll get you with somebody. They'll ask you your testimony and um, we'll receive you as we can. But this is kind of an invitation about us. Will you respond? And will you be involved? And will you go to work? You got to work while it's daylight, right? Got to work while you have opportunity. You got to work while the sun is shining. And you don't want to waste any opportunities. And we just don't want to waste any opportunities. Thank you for doing this. And let's get ready to go to plow. It's time to plow. Heavenly Father, as we think about this, we recognize we need to be people in fellowship. And uh, however we need to enhance that, it won't do any good unless you bless it. Lord, we don't want to just get together and eat donuts. But what we would like to do is get together in kind of a covenant setting, sharing food together and also sharing life, sharing our hearts, sharing our burdens, sharing prayers, and above all, sharing love. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn about some things. Maybe that we, maybe we already knew them and we need to be reminded of them. Don't let us ever stop learning. And maybe there's some new things and some new uh, principles from the Word of God that we need to have in our heart and in the hearts of others. And Father, outreach, I think, is a major weakness of Grace Way Baptist Church. I pray we would get the gospel out to people. And if they won't accept the gospel, there's something that they'll accept to us that may lead to a gospel presentation later on. That our light might shine before men, as Jesus said, that they would see our good works, and then they would glorify our Father which is in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that we would be worshipers, always looking for an opportunity to praise our great God. Whether it's outside of the church, but especially inside of the church. We ought never be hesitant. We ought never be apathetic about the worship of the God who sent his only son to die on the cross for us. To worship the God who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God the Father. The God who took us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light. May we worship. And may all of this bring glory to you, even the times when that fifth Sunday comes and we don't gather, but we spend good time with our family. May it gospelize our children. 
May it be used to teach and demonstrate to them the character and the nature of God and the truth of Scripture. And so, Lord, it's our desire to dedicate this to you and ask you to move mightily in all of this. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we don't lose heart. That's your word, and that's what we claim. And we pray this, Lord, because we don't want to be the sluggard, and we certainly don't want to be scrounging for a harvest when there is none. Bless our church fellowship by blessing us like never before. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Thank you.